two of our three-part series on chastity. Um, we may only need two and a half of these sessions. Um, so let's start by recapping what we were talking about last time. Uh, I had the feeling that you weren't quite as familiar with, or, you know, maybe with a year out on a parish, um, with the thing what a virtue is to begin with, so that we're understanding that before we're thinking particularly what a, the virtue of chastity is. So um, what did we say about virtues in general? Um, the passions and virtues, remind me. Okay. They have an object which they're oriented um, and through action you habituate a virtue. Through action you habituate a virtue or you habituate a vice yeah. is an important thing also to be clear. So action habituates us by repetition um, but one of the reasons we need to think carefully what the object of any particular virtue is, or in our context, the object of chastity is, is if we focus on the wrong, if we choose the wrong object, we get a vice, not a virtue. Or we might just, in a sense, get a different virtue, not the virtue we're really aiming for. And I'd suggest that in chastity, the virtue we might be most likely to habituate ourselves to instead of chastity, would just be self-control. And self-control is a good thing, but self-control isn't that integration of the passions and virtue, uh, of the passions and the goods and the person um, that virtue is. Um, so the Catechism, when it defines virtue, talks about how virtue gives us ease, gives us joy, um, so there are three things in the human person in terms of the structure of your being you have your intellect, you have your will and because you are a bodily creature you have passions you see something in the intellect um, so it's not just the physical seeing intellectually how you grasp it makes a difference. You see something in the intellect that triggers immediately something in you as a bodily being in your passions that is moving you either towards this thing or away from this thing. And your will then has to decide, am I going to move with my passions or am I going to override my passions? Or the will can try and manipulate the intellect so that I perceive the thing in front of me differently and trigger a different passion. Did we talk about this last time? Then let me play this out um, in a little detail. So 
uh, I think I just used the phrase intentional object. So St. Thomas gives the example um, of a wolf, a kind of, dare we say, a rather medieval example. Um, but he says, you see the wolf and if you perceive its teeth, then it will trigger the passion of fear within you, fear being one of the passions. But if instead of focusing on its teeth, that same thing materially in your intellect, your will tells your intellect, look at its weak underbelly, look at how it's vulnerable to your sword, that will trigger the passion of daring. So the same physical entity before us, the wolf, depending on how I engage with it in my intellect, can trigger a passion of fear or a passion of daring. And in order to kind of strengthen my, the ability of my will to choose the right thing, kind of psyching myself up, to use a more modern phrasing, but perceiving it differently, therefore triggering a different passion, makes it easy to move myself um, towards what I know I need to do. So that, still thinking of the example of the wolf, my intellect might judge, I need to do something about this wolf. Just thinking about its teeth is just making me fearful. How do I overcome that? Focus on its vulnerability. Um, that triggers a different passion um, and then my will is going to be able to be strengthened or in, it's going to be more workable for my will to choose what my intellect is presenting to me as the sensible thing to do. So these three dimensions within me, my intellect, my passions, my will. Um, So one of the scantily clad female joggers circuiting the, the campus here through the summer months, um, I see, um, I can see and immediately with my will just override that looking to avert my eyes. Um, or I can kind of aid myself in that right behavior by briefly having my will direct my intellect to something about the packaging there that just makes her seem less desirable to me. She belongs to someone else. Uh, she does not belong to a priest. I, I somehow see her even in the distance and just do something to what I am perceiving to make her seem less desirable. Not ugly, but just not relevant to me. That changes the passion that is triggered within me, makes it easier for my will to choose the right thing at kind of the immediate level to avert my eyes. And in virtue, Virtue is a steady disposition, um, not just a momentary single good act, a steady dip disposition 
that we gain by repeating the right action again and again and again. Um, okay. So that's kind of a bit about training the passions I've mentioned. Um, what was I saying about charity and joy versus sloth and sorrow? Michael, can you refresh us? Yes. Um, more specifically, um, every joy or pleasure comes with a union with the thing that is causing it. Um, so I, I have physical union with a donut that triggers a physical pleasure. Spiritually, charity, in love, I have a union with God that triggers the spiritual joy of that union with God. And that's what I'm made for. That's what, the most, at the most basic level, all my human striving is seeking happiness, seeking that real happiness that is um, the beatitude, the joy found in God, the joy that is part of the life of God himself. But as you said, with sloth, I can instead perceive God and just perceive how difficult he is to attain. And in perceiving that difficulty, I trigger sorrow within myself, passion of sadness, and that just moves me to do nothing. Um, envy, a different sorrow, but also rather than having love of your neighbor, love and rejoicing at the neighbor, some good he has, you see some good he has, and in envy, you experience sorrow. Um, what else did we have here? Um, Okay, so I was beginning to map out, what I was trying to map out, what I've said here, the concupiscible power of the sensitive appetite. That you have these various, in the right structure of your being, movements within you directing you, pushing you to certain things, seeking satisfaction. At the most base level, seeking that joy that is to be found in God, we all want joy, even if we don't know where we're looking for it or what it exactly is. No one wants to be miserable. Um, this concupiscible power, literally concupiscible meaning with desire, with passion, um, is moving me 
in a way that I'm trying to map out in these different joys, pleasures, sorrows, um, how does that map out? Which is going to be important for us thinking how it maps out in chastity and the pleasures of the flesh. Um, so, where else was I going with that? I lost my own train of thought. Uh, so, if we have charity, that union with God and love, we have joy. If we have sloth, shr shrinking from that, we have spiritual sorrow. Um, that was it, lust. Um, so, if you fail to find your joy in God, if you have sloth, just sorrow at the divine good, I quoted St. Thomas last time. He says you will, one of the politically incorrect term, daughters of the capital sin of sloth, one of the daughters of sloth is a wandering after unlawful things. You are built to seek satisfaction. If you don't find satisfaction in God, you're going to go grubbing around for it somewhere else. So you're going to go grubbing around for it either in lust or in gluttony, um, particularly in terms of the pleasures of the flesh. You are built for pleasure. If you don't find it properly ordered as a part of charity, which is what chastity, abstinence, play do, properly ordered as a part of charity, then you're going to somehow seek them as an attempt to have satisfaction. And I think that's as far as we got yesterday or the other Monday. I haven't got anything on gluttony here. Um, so just verbally, briefly, gluttony. Um, there are many different ways you can be gluttonous, but if you remember a couple of lectures ago, we talked about pleasure. Um, you know, I looked at the ends of marriage. I said preceded all that by looking at pleasure itself and saying pleasure is not a bad thing. You are built in part of your, the structure of your being. You just need pleasure. Um, St. Thomas, who quotes Aristotle, um, that the creator has attached different pleasures to different activities um, because he knows you need them. So the pleasure of finishing a paper that you're handing in is a type of intellectual pleasure. Very different from the pleasure of eating a cookie. Very different from the pleasure of sex. All kinds of different activities have a different completion, a different pleasure that goes with them in that completion. That pleasure is a sign to you that you've finished the the act, the task. Um, it's a sign that things are going well. Um, 
St. Thomas also, again quoting Aristotle, says that the soul experiences rest in pleasure. So I eat the donut and there's a kind of, ah, oh, a kind of rest in that pleasure. That the striving, the movement, the seeking, wanting satisfaction, wanting a goal, wanting an end, I have the pleasure and there is a rest in that striving in the soul. My body needs the rest of sleep. My soul needs the rest of pleasure. So if we try to live without pleasure, we're just going to end up dysfunctional. So St. Thomas, as I quoted a couple lectures ago, says, the human person cannot live without bodily pleasures. So if you try to be an uber Puritan, you're not only going to somehow be miserable, but almost inevitably you're going to end up grabbing at other pleasures, kind of when no one's looking. You, you do need pleasures of some form. Um, so the question then becomes, if you're built for pleasure as just a part of what you are, good pleasures and bad pleasures. So St. Thomas says, good pleasures attached to good actions, evil pleasures to evil actions. In the scheme I put here, the good pleasures are part of our possession of spiritual joy. So if I experience the donut as part of the goodness of God, as I'm eating the donut, I have an awareness a good God made a world where donuts exist. Then I am, that physical pleasure is part of the spiritual joy of being united to God. The physical pleasure is also giving that rest of soul that my body and my body-soul unity is calling for. Um, sorry, I lost the end of the sentence there. Okay, see where I'm going with this though? Yes. A cold beer at the, on a hot day, the end of a hot day in the summer. I drink the cold beer with an awareness this is cold beer only exists because God has made a world where such a thing is possible. I enjoy the beer as a Christian. I enjoy the beer in union with him. Not needing to be saying an entire rosary as I'm drinking the beer. Um, not needing even to be saying a Hail Mary. But just in a, with an awareness of his presence, a spirit of thankfulness. Therefore that partaking of the physical pleasure is a partaking in spiritual joy. I think we'll come on to this in the notes later, but St. Thomas says, anything that is capable of physical delectation, pleasure, is also capable for the rational being of being an object of spiritual joy. That that physical thing I can engage with at that deeper rational spiritual level that doesn't undermine the physical, but just sees something even deeper within it, 
um, and then these pleasures are part of true joy. Whereas when these pleasures are a desperate escape in the midst of my sorrow, then I'm just going to grab for them as if they were an, an end in themselves, a satisfaction as the end in themselves, and they're then going to be disordered, and they're also not going to be ultimately satisfying. So before we do anything new today, any comments thus far? I'm sure a lot of what I'm saying, you know, you've heard in different forms multiple times. I'm <laughs> you've heard that you were made for God before. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you've heard that there are good pleasures and bad pleasures. Yeah, okay. Um, where we're going to be ultimately heading with this as chastity is that Chastity concerns a certain type of pleasure that is good in itself but needs to be engaged in as part of the wider package that it properly belongs to. Um, okay, page seven on the notes I gave you last lecture, the virtue of temperance. I think I already started on this. Um, so temperance is in a sense, the, yeah, because you went through the four cardinal virtues with Dr. Murphy a year and a half ago. Yes? Sort of. We talk more about politics than virtues. So, that's the thing. Okay, it was on the syllabus. Um, So let me recap. Um, what we're so these four cardinal virtues, St. Augustine says there are four forms of love. Um, each of those has a whole range of human activity under it. Temperance, what is temperance? That's, um, Daniel, could you read the quotation from the catechism at the top of the page there? Temperance is the virtue which moderates the attraction of pleasures and balances the use of creative goods. It ensures the will's mastery over instincts and keeps desires within the limit of what is honorable. The attraction of pleasures. So it moderates that attraction. So the attraction is part of being a human being. The attraction isn't per se problematic. But particularly in our fallen state, that attraction, those desires are out of kilter. Either we're desiring things that aren't appropriate for me personally, or I'm wanting them too much or too little. So a donut is good for me, an ice cream is good for me, but how often? I've summarized in bold and that it puts reason into the passions. So talked about the intellect, you are a rational being, you need to have your passions structured by reason. The possession of the virtue of temperance puts reason into your passions. 
particularly those passions that relate to pleasure. Um, I'm not going to go through in detail all of the um, subjective parts, but there are various parts of passion. So there's all kinds of different spheres of application, um, some that are conditions, some that relate, so pleasures of touch, whether food or drink, pleasures of procreation, chastity, purity, um, this moderation of the attraction of pleasures has application in all kinds of different things. Um, let's read through the quotation from the Catechism at the bottom there. Um, Michael, would you mind reading that to us? Yeah. To live well is nothing other than... To Sorry, the one before, the, the whole oh. block. Sorry, big block. Temperance is the moral virtue that moderates the attraction of pleasures and provides balance in the use of created goods. It ensures the will's mastery over instincts and keeps desires within the limits of what is honorable. The temperate person directs the sensitive appetites towards what is good and maintains a healthy discretion. Do not follow your inclination and strength, walking according to the desires of your heart. Temperance is often praised in the Old Testament. Do not follow your base desires, but restrain your appetites. In the New Testament, it is called moderation or sobriety. We ought to live sober and upright, up, sober, upright, and godly lives in the world. To live well is nothing other than to love God with all one's heart and with all one's soul and with all one's efforts. From this it comes about that love is kept whole and uncorrupted through temperance. No misfortune can disturb it, and this is fortitude. It obeys only God, and this is justice, and is careful in discerning things so as not to be surprised by deceit or trickery. This is Comments thus far? So the attraction of pleasures, a virtue that habituates us to have that attraction, but in a moderated fashion. Yeah. So one of the subjective parts is abstinence. When we talk about that anymore, it's pretty much like you don't eat meat. Fridays yeah, afternoon. good point. So like, yeah. It's more of like you completely stay away from it more than a, you know, Right. So what we just are using the same word two different ways. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the classical use of the word abstinence there um, in St. Thomas um, is closer to dieting in that it's that broader thing of watching what you eat, its quantity, its timing. It's not necessarily, so in, in our Catholic current terminology, abstinence, as you say, Friday, from abstinence from meat, um, it's about self-denial. Abstinence in this context is broader than that. Um, so to diet into the sense of eating a healthy diet does involve self-control, self-denial, but it's not just about penance, it's about healthy eating. All clear there? So actually, that, but that's a good point. Um,
and there isn't really a single modern word that replaces that moderation in e moderation in eating is probably the closest but then you don't have one word you've got three um, yeah. okay or yeah be fully German and don't eat enough hyphens <laughs> moderation in eating um, Yeah. And moderation with drink, alcoholic drink, but yes, you're right. Yet again, not about nothing um, and not even about self-denial as the motive, but about that ordered controlling of it. Okay, one thing I've not got in the notes yet that actually I should make sure you've heard properly in courses on virtue before um, the difference between um, sorry I'm having a, a really bad mental blank day um, continence and virtue continence which is self-control and virtue, which is integration. So we all know the experience when you, in a sense, at the level of your desires, you want something, but you choose not to do it. That is not virtue, that is self-control continence, to use the terminology of Aristotle and St. Thomas. Um, and self-control is a good thing. It's much better to have self-control than to not be in control. What's better, though, is by training, by habituation, to even at the level of your desires and passions, to be moved to the right thing. And that's the integration of virtue. When I see the pile of three donuts and I just spontaneously, even at the level of my body and my passions, say, looks nice, but not good for me, not appropriate, at the level of my passions, I'm not moved there. Rather than my passions being so excited that I really have to exercise self-control, hold myself together. Um, so, how do I gain that integration of virtue? Repetition. That I restrain myself once, I restrain myself another day, and another day, and another day, and I grow in that virtue. Until it just, the passions have not been um, satisfied in the carrying out of that seeking of pleasure. They get used to not following through. Whereas if the passions, I allow them to kind of follow through, get that sugar rush from the three donuts, I'm triggering a cycle there that builds itself into, into a habit, habitus more broadly speaking. So the difference between continence and virtue.
comments, yeah. So is the difference than just the intention, where if you're avoiding the donut out of self-control, here's the intent to avoid it, where virtue is your approaching of, oh, there's something better, I'm not going to eat the donut? Purely a intentionality difference? No, so the intention, because the intention would be kind of your intellectual processing, that would be the same in both. The integration, the virtue, is whether you feel in your passions an attraction to eat all three donuts. Whereas if you have trained your passions well, you look at the three donuts and even at the level of your passions, you're just not moved to them. That yeah, they look okay, they look fine. Um, I'm sure other people would enjoy them. Um, I might enjoy one of them. But even at that level of my passions, I'm not pulled to have all three. Are you with me now? Yeah. So you say that the exercising of continence should lead to virtue, or are they just separate things? That's a very good question. So. Um, I used the word earlier, intentional object. My color scheme has failed me here. If you're writing that, write it in green because it relates, I think, more to, to virtue. Um, what in my intellect I am perceiving and choosing is going to change what virtue I'm habituated in. So if what I'm choosing is all focused on self-control and conquering, then that's what's going to be built into my habitus. And there is a virtue of self-discipline, there is a virtue of self-control, which would be abiding in the will, but it wouldn't be a virtue with a seat in the affectivity, in the passions. And the fullness of virtue resides in not just a strength in the will of, of continence, but even at my passions level. Um, so continence is, is more a denial of the passion as yeah. opposed to virtue, which is, uh, or moving towards the virtue would be maybe a recognized of this passion is not the passion that I want to go towards, but I want to go towards this passion and redirecting the objects of my will towards another passion, which is a bit of self-control, but it's, I'm not just denying, but I'm going towards something else. Yeah. So just to repeat, not just denying going towards something else. That something else I'm choosing in the intellectual object, that is what's going to be repeated if I, something else, choose that again and again. I'm going to be habituated to seek that. So if when I see the three donuts, what I am choosing is the healthy lifestyle, that's what I'm going to be habituated to pursue. Whereas if what I just choose is no, no, and you 
You may sometimes hear me muttering to myself as I go through the refectory, no, as I go through it, that it, it is better to have self-control than to, to just pig out. But that isn't the fullness of virtue. The fullness of virtue is to see the donuts and be able to say, I want to be healthy and to choose health. Um, Have you habituated yourself to desire your little bag of bran flakes yet? <laughs> <laughs> I've habituated myself so that they just feel natural to me. I no longer feel as I'm eating that fiber one, I'm doing something heroic this morning. Yeah, with the first semester of it, uh, I, it every morning it felt I'm doing something heroic today. Um, now it just feels normal. Um, I want, yeah, the doctor said this is what you need to do to be healthy. I want to be healthy. It just feels normal. Feeling normal, feeling natural, not needing to think about it, those are kind of the benefits of possessing a virtue. Whereas if we're continually living in a state of struggle, particularly if it's even just about my breakfast, uh, I haven't got the energy for the deeper struggles, like speaking charitably to the weirdo sat next to me at breakfast. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking then of uh, other times when you've mentioned, um, you know, having, like in our formation conferences two years ago, you know, um, denying yourself some, a little bit of something every day um, does not necessarily continence because the, the end is not I'm denying myself, but the end is I'm habituating myself towards something greater than just the denial of myself, right? Right. So the Kantian can deny himself to become the uberman, yeah? He has a vision and, you know, in a sense, not a bad vision. Um, very different from, there's not a crucifix in here. Is there a crucifix? There it is, okay. So in my self-denial as a Christian, I want to be united to him. And yes, in particular, him on the cross, but it's about him. And that means there's something much deeper going on each time I'm denying myself than just not having pleasure. Uh, and because I know part of what needs reforming in myself includes my unhealthy attractions to pleasures, particularly with th certain things of food, the only way to the him union with him in the resurrection is union with him on the cross. Um, but what I'm thinking is union with him. And that's what makes that Christian act of self-denial different from the Kantian uberman self-conquest. Um, what I'm thinking, what I'm choosing, that is a different act depending what in my intentional object I grasp onto. Yeah. Would this virtuous response then lead to the habitus or vice versa? I still think I have a good notion of the habitus. 
Okay, so habitus just means the stable disposition. It can be a stable disposition to something good or to something evil. Habitus doesn't imply it's a good stable disposition. It just means it's a stable disposition. A stable disposition to the good is a virtue. And I've been teaching this many years now, um, and that's a repeated thing people get. We, we kind of talk about forming the habitus, um, but we need to be aware that there's a bad habitus or many bad habituses I can be formed in as well. Okay. So temperance, sorry, back to my notes here, page seven, this broad, one of the four cardinal virtues, um, I need to be, one of the four cardinal virtues, um, moderating pleasures of, of eating. Moderating pleasures also of sex. So, over the page, chastity, on in a sense to where we are particularly aiming to kind of pull this all together. So, chastity, what have I said here? I said chastity can be understood negatively or positively. So, negatively, it can be understood as a training of a problematic desire. See, chastity concerns the specific pleasures relating to sexual intercourse. Quoting St. Thomas, it receives its name because reason chastises concupiscence, which like a child needs curbing. It is part of temperance because it restrains. So St. Thomas in talking about this notes, the very word itself comes from chastising that there's this desire within me that kind of needs to be beaten, the way you beat a little child in medieval schooling. Um, but positively, I say, is about forming sexuality for something, for self-gift, for love. And I know that these two aspects, the positive, the negative, um, aren't in opposition, but they can be properly presented as if they were. So, you know, good raising of a child both has discipline and has reward. Um, similarly, for an integrated chastity, we need to discipline, chastise our desires, but with an ultimate positive end goal. Why am I chastising my desires in order to be able to give myself in self-gift? which includes the self-gift of the celibate and the self-gift of the married man uh, or married woman. Okay, particularly I say chastity concerns sexuality. First bullet point I say different virtues reflect different aspects of human nature. So many different names of virtues for many different things. Um, two quotes from the catechism there. Tyler, can you read the first quote?
And Daniel, the next quote. Chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within the person, and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. Sexuality, in which man's belonging to the bodily and biological world is expressed, becomes personal and truly human when it is integrated into the relationship of one person to another, in the complete and lifelong mutual gift of a man and woman. The virtue of chastity, therefore, involves the integrity of the person So, at the risk of stating the obvious, in our modern culture, um, sexuality is frequently not personal at all. It's just a thing you do, a thing you have fun with, um, might in some transitory sense involve another person. The Catechism is saying it needs to become personal and thus truly human. Um, and it does that when integrated into the relationship of one person to another. Now the next little section here is connecting, as I've already briefly said, how chastity relates to charity. Charity in the sense of that love of God, that love that is the essence of God in himself that we share in by possessing grace, share in the life of grace, the life of God, the life of love, that that movement of love, of divine charity within me, this chastity is to be a partaking of that. So chastity and divine charity. Say all virtue finds its fullest form in being ordered to the love of God. Quoting the Catechism, charity is the form of all the virtues. Under its influence, chastity appears as a school of the gift of the person. So we're going to come back to this image again and again. The gift of the person, this is what chastity um, is ordered towards. Then I've got two quotations there. Um, have you all heard of John Harvey? Possibly most famous for his work with courage um, and homosexuality. Um, wrote a very interesting article on this point, the relationship of chastity and charity. Um, so, uh, Michael, could you read the first bullet point quoting him there in regard to? Yeah, in regard to the virtue of chastity, moreover, the question may be posed, what elements make chastity stronger? Is it the mere repetition of natural acts of modesty and, and of emotional self-control? Or is it a dynamically growing motivation of supernatural charity? Granted that both factors are important, which is basic. The positive motivation of charity is more basic to the practice of chastity than the practice of various natural safeguards. Indeed, charity is the best incentive for the repetition of acts of modesty, of moderation in the use of food and drink, and of the various other practices necessary for the preservation and growth of chastity. Okay, let's pause and think there what he's saying. So he's saying you have, you know, young people, you're trying to teach them how to be chaste. What's the most basic thing they're doing to learn how to be chaste? So you tell them, 
don't look at pornography. You tell them don't get drunk when you're alone with uh, a girl on a beach and whatever. Um, various natural safeguards. There's a way of presenting chastity training and whatever that focuses all on those things. He's saying, and let's remember, this is kind of his life work, um, chastity, that the motivation of charity is more basic to chastity than all those natural safeguards. So the young girl that you're alone with, if you are thinking of authentic love, that's going to be a much more foundational movement to chastity in how you relate to her than those natural safeguards. And he's not saying, therefore, don't worry about the nat natural safeguards. He's saying, what is really going on here if you have chastity? That motivation of the love, charity being the love of God that you possess. The other things might give you self-control, but they don't really give you chastity, the virtue of chastity. Next bullet point, David, could you read for us? Under the influx of charity, chastity increases more in intrinsic facility than in extrinsic facility. To some extent, repeated acts of mortification of the senses of the imagination render the practice of chastity easier, but not easy. To a greater extent, chastity draws strength from frequent acts of love of God. The, extrin the extrinsic form of charity is most apparent in infused chastity. In short, meditation on the motives for chastity joined to the practice of mortification render the, the virtue doubly strong. Uh, and at the risk of stating the obvious, what's he meaning here? Meditation on the motives of chastity in this context. Actually thinking about the charity that you're striving towards, why you're doing this, what your goal is. Exactly, yeah. So I've used the phrase already, this intentional object, meditation on what you're doing, um, coupled with the practices of mortification of your discipline, but thinking, meditating on this love that is needing to suffuse this whole relationship I'm with, um, that's going to be the thing that really makes chastity, chastity, not just self-control. makes a lot of sense um, just I, I think if a lot of people look at the church and they say you know all these rules we can't do anything mm -hmm. um, well the, the rules are half of the uh, half of the answer half of what's being trying to be presented you know we're not going around thinking about each person oh I'm not going to kill them I'm not going to kill them I'm not going to kill them but create a, in a sense, virtue of living, of seeing other people alive, right? So mm -hmm. rather than going around saying, 
I'm not going to have sex with you, I'm not going to have sex with you, it's creating a better disposition, right? Um, yeah. So it, I, it works for more than just chastity. Makes sense. And as you're saying, pastor, there are lots of people who the only bit of the message they're receiving is that you can't do that and you can't do that. Um, whereas what you're actually really aiming for, that you can only really aim for if you don't do that and don't do that, um, they're not hearing the ultimate goal of all those particular don't do's. Um, okay, moving along here. Bottom, a couple of bullet points. I've said chastity and self-gift. Trying to summarize here. Sexuality, what is it? It's something that orients us beyond ourselves. The, the aspect of me that is sexual can only be satisfied with another. It orients me beyond myself. Authentic sexuality orients us in love not in self-seeking. So my sexuality can orient me to a type of self-seeking with another in pleasure, but it's still somehow with another, but it's not authentic sexuality unless it's oriented in love. Um. Okay, spelling this out, page nine. Self-gift in different forms of chastity. So I say, for the married, training in chastity frees them to give themselves to their spouse. Self-mastery prevents selfishness in sexual pleasure. Affectivity becomes ordered towards the other in all bodily affective forms. And sexuality becomes ordered to love in accordance with its authentic inner dynamic. Whereas for us, for the celibate, training in chastity frees them to love God with an undivided heart. Sexuality enables self-gift in giving this precious aspect of himself to God. And I quote that beautiful image from Revelation, these are they who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The 144,000 virgins in the book of Revelation, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. What have they done with their bodies? What have they done with their sexuality? They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Mystical marriage in this sense. The celibate is, in a certain sense, married to God. If male he shares in what is more directly applicable to the female religious and imagery. So, you know, it's easy to put that imagery, a woman religious marrying Jesus. For us, we have to apply that analogously, otherwise it gets super weird. Um, but it is real. Um, I say for the celibate priest, we share in Christ's marriage to his church. Uh, so if you I still remembering from two years ago when I, in a few different articles in formation with you, we talked about um, the priest as bridegroom, by my union with Christ, the bridegroom, I share in his relationship to his bride, the church. 
and my celibacy has that particular uh, enabling as a part of that, that my self-gift, I'm giving myself to the church, including even giving my sexuality. Which if I was giving it to an individual woman, I would lack that freedom to give it to the bride, the church. Guessing you've read various commentators that take that phrase from St. Paul that the elder must be a man of one wife. Um, I have one wife and she is the church. Comments? Um, when I was about your age, there were a lot of weird people running around in the church saying weird stuff about sexuality uh, as priests. Um, I can remember some priests talking, somehow taking this language of giving their sexuality to their parishioners. And even as they were saying it, it wouldn't quite sound right. And then you would read various headlines and guys would be dispensed from their promises at various stages. Um, there's a deep spirituality in what's being said here, but we need to be very careful in knowing it only works in how I relate to a particular parishioner with very precise safeguards in place. Otherwise, as I say, it just becomes super weird. Um, so it's very real it's a very deep thing to sacrifice my sexuality to give myself in this way to my people um, but that has to be very analogically understood not seeking physical unions and satisfactions Okay, a little bit here, a section called Training in Chastity. So I note, drawing from the Catechism, that it's a process, in particular, wonderful the way the Catechism calls it, a battle. The battle for purity is how this is described. Uh, Daniel, could you read the first quote from the Catechism? And Michael? Chastity has laws of growth which progress through stages marked by imperfection and too often by sin. So it's not a straight line in how we grow in this. Uh, it's not always improving. Um, what's involved in chastity? Here, all the sections quoting the Catechism. Um, Self-mastery, training for human freedom. That a person governed by his passions is at war with himself, um, whereas a person who governs his passions is at peace. Um, it involves self-knowledge. It involves the practice of asceticism. So St. Thomas says fasting bridles the passions. It involves mortification of the imagination, mortification of the flesh, training in custody of the eyes, Catechism goes on, obedience to the commandments, exercise of the moral virtues, 
fidelity to prayer and meditation on the motives of ch for chastity which I said before that's a quote from John Harvey not from the Catechism and note drawing from the Catechism it is a moral virtue but it's also a gift from God a grace and that means therefore we need to pray for it so as I'm struggling with chastity seeking to grow in chastity it is a gift therefore I should pray for it I add more specifically, however, chastity, like all virtues, is not just about restraint, but rather about proper ordering and integration of the passions. And then I note the two vices opposed to chastity, lust and inordinate desire for sexual pleasure, or unfeelingness, insensibility, frigidity, um, lack of due desire for sexual pleasure which is counter to the order of nature it is not taking pleasure in that which we should take pleasure in say so it's more rare so much so that there's not a clear word in the tradition to describe this vice but because every moral virtue has two extremes too little too much there is a way of being too little in this regard So the whole process of training there. Um, how are we doing time-wise? Um, okay, very briefly, I've got a little aside there called natural chastity and infused virtue. I say if chastity is part of our love of God, then does it make sense, can there be a natural chastity, i.e. a chastity possessed by the unbeliever who neither knows nor loves God? And I note that many unbelievers are visibly chaste, um, but I see that self-control isn't the same as a virtue oriented to God. But, uh, and you can see the footnote, the article here I'm drawing from, Something like natural chastity exists in believers and aids them to grow in supernatural chastity. And this would seem to be a kind of natural foundation for the supernatural virtue. St. Thomas knows that some people seem to be born with a natural disposition that makes chastity easier. And I guess I would by analogy say some people are born and athletics is easier for them. Some people are born and moderation in eating is easier for them. Similarly in chastity, some people seem to have a natural disposition to find this easier. Um, grace builds on nature. Um, okay, I'm gonna skip to page 11, the little section on play there. Um, so, lots of different activities, lots of different virtues. St. Thomas has a virtue that he calls play or games, depending which translation you're drawing from. And I say, the virtue of play restrains immoderate outward fun. And it's part of the virtue of modesty because it's about outward behavior of the body. I've said this already, but 
The soul has limited pleasures, it needs to rest. Quoting St. Thomas, the soul's rest is in pleasure. And he says, words and deeds delight the soul. This is called play, and it's necessary to use it. Then I quote Fulton Sheen. Fulton Sheen says, um, summarizing St. Thomas, play is activity that is purposeless, but not meaningless. So baseball, when you play baseball, there are rules, there is structure, there is all kinds of meaning within it. But if it's play, it doesn't have a purpose beyond itself. So the professional baseballer, why is he doing it to make money, to get a living, to have a career? For him, it's no longer play. He might enjoy his job, but it's no longer purposeless. For play to truly be play, it doesn't have a meaning beyond itself, a purpose rather beyond itself. So just things that somehow the doing of them, there's a pleasure that brings rest to the soul, and we need this. I don't... Go on. To play the devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. So like, because when in play, you can you build bonds with the people that you're playing with. But you can even play, like, you can play to build those bonds. So there is a purpose beyond it, but at the same time, it feels very much still like play. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but like, even just mud bowl practice or whatever. Like, we're playing, but we're also, like, building that brotherhood. Which, yeah. So it seems like you can't have a purpose beyond it and still have it be play. I'm wondering if that is part of the purpose of play. Which is just an effect of it. Yeah. Or it might be happening at the same time. So if, if you were doing the mud bowl because the rector had commanded it and had commanded that there be team building and commanded that you have fun, um, kind of the fun would all drain out of it, yeah? Um, But how you grow in friendship with another is the doing of things together, um, team building, the friendship not just with one but with, with the others. But it just it so seems I, like it's very it seems like it'd be hard to play without some sort of relationship building. Yeah. But it seems like you could also have that be the end and have it still be real play. I think that would somehow be inherent to authentic recreation, that it, it just does that humanly. But that if you try to make it artificial by saying, not we're going to go play, but we're going to go do team building, it then kind of wouldn't be... You might do, achieve the team building, but you'd kind of not get the relaxation. I think that's as far as I'm going to get into the answer. But you're right that there's multiple things that can be achieved in the same activity. Then would the participation medal mode of athletics lead to better play versus a tournament style where actually achieving something gains more? 
I'm not entirely sure. I suppose there are just multiple different things that you're aiming for. So when the school children are sent out to do their games, that's different from during lunchtime when they're doing some of those same things by themselves and kind of recreating themselves. I'm not sure. I'm go and I'm going to put that aside. The, the, the big point I wanted to make is that there's a, a healthy way of playing, of recreating, that is necessary to the human person. Um, and in a broader picture with chastity, if you don't have that natural recreation and satisfaction of good, appropriate pleasures, that's one of the ways chastity goes astray. That you then, the body starts grubbing after illicit satisfactions because you're not finding them in the natural healthy satisfactions that include recreation games, mud bowl or whatever. Um. Okay, let's over the page. Um, the last thing we'll do today, um, gluttony. So what is gluttony? Um, Quoting St. Thomas, it's an inordinate desire, unregulated by reason, knowingly exceeding need. And why do you do it? He says, for the sake of pleasure. Whereas the virtue he calls abstinence is eating moderately in accord with right reason. Then directly quoting, the measure for food and drink should be set by the body's health. I want to run through the five ways that St. Gregory the Great, you know, he was the one who give, gave us the enumeration of the seven deadly sins. He also listed with each of those various daughter sins that flow out. Um, in this context, he notes five ways that gluttony tempts us. First, seeking too much, seeking food that is too fancy or too excessively tasty seeking food that is too expensive, needing to eat at improper or excessive times or in a hasty manner, or leading us to eat in a manner that lacks manners and social consideration. And why do you do all that? Because of the pleasure of food, not for the food itself. Now let me, that list there. We tend to think about gluttony just about quantity. That's our most common image, too much. But too expensive. Uh, and you know, priests can be, this can be a big problem for us. Um, too fussy about taste. That I reach a stage where I know what a good wine tastes like and I just get unreasonably fussy about a good wine. And a good steak. A nice steak. A hundred dollar steak. Uh, and it's easy to get $100 steaks, not very far from here. Um, gluttony isn't just about quantity, it's about pursuing all these things in a way that has lost proper measure. And food is good, the pleasure of food is good, but I should not seek it in a way that is spending an undue quantity of money, being overly fussy, um, 
multiple ways we can be gluttonous. Okay, what have we been talking, I've been trying in all of this, and we'll come back to this in our next lecture. The next lecture we're going to talk more particularly about the mechanics of growing in virtue, and in our context, growing in the virtue of chastity. Trying to see chastity more broadly as a virtue, a stable disposition to a particular good, um, and seeing how all these different joys, sorrows, pleasures, habituations fit together.